following resource is from Welford Baptist Church. Well, good morning, church. Good to see everybody this morning. We're in Matthew chapter 6 today. Matthew chapter 6 as we continue in the Lord's Prayer. Matthew chapter 6. Well, James Thurber was one of the great humorists of the 20th century. He's known for his comical tales like The Night the Bed Fell and The Dog That Bit People. But Thurber is probably most famous for his short story, The Secret Life of Walter Mitty, which you probably had to read all the way back in high school. Walter Mitty, you'll remember, was a boring old chap whose nagging and domineering wife is always making him feel like a fool. Plus, he's easily intimidated, mocked by various people around town, so he feels like a total non-entity at best and a laughingstock at worst. But as he is driving his wife to have her hair done one day, he imagines that he's a Navy pilot, feeling that rush of adrenaline as he navigates through a storm at sea. Snap back into reality as his wife complains about his driving skills, he goes into another fantasy about being a world-class surgeon as Mrs. Mitty insists he put on some gloves. After that, he daydreams that he's an assassin on trial. Later, as he waits for his wife in a hotel lobby, he escapes once more into his mind, this time as a heroic Air Force pilot. And when his wife arrives and berates him for being lost in his imagination and not making himself easier to find, he responds in frustration, does it ever occur to you that I am sometimes thinking? To which she responds, I'm going to take your temperature when I get you home. As they walk back toward the car, Mrs. Mitty steps into the drugstore promising, I won't be a minute. Thurber informs us she was more than a minute, leaving Walter Mitty time for one final fantasy in which he gallantly faces a firing squad and is summarily put out of his misery. The story is a classic example of fantasy versus reality, because in reality, Walter Mitty is a total lehu zahur, right? He, his life is mundane, no one respects him, his wife's got him whipped, but in his imagination, he can escape his nondescript life. He can be the man that he wishes he could be, that hero in his own mind. He can live in a fantasy land, which helps him cope with reality, but in reality, what he dreams about has zero connection to the real world. You know, we chuckle at that, but I think it's how a lot of people view faith in God. The atheist Karl Marx famously put it this way, that religion is the opiate of the masses. In other words, he's saying it's a nice thought. Maybe it helps you cope a little bit, have a little hope that things might get better. I might go to heaven when I die, but really it has zero connection to the real world, to my everyday life. Oh, you talk about your kingdom come, but what about life here and now? And oh, you've got your father up in heaven, but what about all of us stuck down here on earth? And you know, if we're honest, many believers perpetuate this perception of Christianity and how they live out their faith. To quote Johnny Cash, you're shining your light and shine it you should, but you're so heavenly minded, you're no earthly good. 
You know, I suppose if we're looking for a reason to reject Jesus' prayer as Walter Mitty-esque, as lofty, kumbaya, warm and fuzzy aspirations, you could twist, you could distort the first few lines of this prayer, you could twist and distort parts of the sermon so far for your purposes, but you would be misunderstanding the glory of Jesus' message here, because he doesn't give us heavenly realities to ponder as a form of escapism or as an opiate to numb us from reality. No, he is inviting us into reality by first aligning us with the creator of reality the highest reality himself so this isn't pie in the sky type stuff because Jesus doesn't just invite us to enter into the kingdom of heaven what is he telling us to pray for for the kingdom of heaven to come to earth Church, do you see why that is so significant? Jesus isn't telling us to put our head in the clouds. He's calling us to line our heart up with the heart of heaven in order to bring the heart of heaven to earth. This is what we see in the law of Moses. Notice the first half of the Ten Commandments. What are they about? They are about our relationship with God. You shall have no other gods. Don't worship a graven image. Don't take the Lord's name in vain. Keep the Sabbath as holy to the Lord. They deal with that vertical relationship. What are the second half about? They're about our relationships on earth. Honor your parents. Don't murder. Don't commit adultery. Don't steal. Don't lie. Don't covet. Do you see? God was showing us through Moses that to get the horizontal relationships right, we need to first get the vertical relationship right. To love our neighbor, we need to first be connected to the love of God. Indeed, Jesus tells us that those are the two greatest commandments. And now, with his model prayer, he is showing us, as the greater Moses, that he's going to follow the same pattern here. The first half of his prayer focuses on the vertical, our connection to God. But the second half of the prayer focuses on the horizontal, our practical needs, our human relationships, on life, our life on earth. In order to do that second half well, we need to first have the first half well established. In other words, to flip the saying, the problem is not that we're so heavenly minded, we're of no earthly good. The problem is we're not heavenly minded enough. Indeed, we must seek to be so heavenly minded if we're going to be of any earthly good. Because if I don't have the heart and mind of heaven, I will be of no benefit to those around me on earth. And I'll have no hope of living the good life on earth as it is in heaven. See, church, Jesus didn't come to take us out of the world. Remember, we saw all the way back in Genesis that God's plan from the very beginning was to establish the kingdom of heaven here on earth. And when we felt, sh- when we felt short of the glory of God, he didn't blow up the world. No, he sent his son into the world to redeem the world and everything in it. Colossians 1.19 says this, For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile all things to himself, whether on earth, it says, or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. Romans 8, 19, for the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, right? Like creation is fallen, but it's not its fault. It's Adam's fault. They're in bondage because of Adam. But it says in hope, all creation itself longs for it to be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Ephesians 1.10 says the plan for the fullness of time was to unite all things in Christ. Listen, things in heaven and on 
earth. And in the Beatitudes, Jesus didn't just promise us the kingdom of heaven. He said the meek shall inherit what? The earth earth. Indeed, when Christ returns and sets all things right, he doesn't just promise to take us off to some ethereal place in the sky. No, he says that there will be a new heaven and a new earth. Listen, church, our heads are not in the clouds. We won't be flitting through the sky. No, there's an earthiness to the kingdom of heaven. We were made for this planet. This planet was made for us. And just as God has redeemed us, he will also redeem this whole planet and all creation. Indeed, the Bible says he will make all things new. And that includes us as human beings. We are inherently material and spiritual. We are body and soul. We are embodied creatures. It is how we were created. It's how we will exist for all eternity. See, unlike pagan religions that view the body as a prison to be escaped from, to be burned and scattered and discarded, the Christian faith treats the body as sacred because we believe in the resurrection. So just as Jesus, who took on flesh, became like us, rose from the dead in a physical body, will dwell again, will dwell forever in a physical body for all eternity, so too will our body be raised from the dead and we will exist as body and soul for all eternity church our bodies matter to god that's why paul says that we should glorify god with our bodies and that's why we see in scripture that jesus didn't just die to save your soul no he died to save you body and soul Indeed, when Matthew describes the gospel of the kingdom that Jesus was proclaiming, listen to what he says in Matthew 4, 23. It says, And Jesus went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. And listen, healing every disease and every affliction among the people. And when John the Baptist sent messengers to ask Jesus if he was really the Messiah, Jesus didn't just say, Man, look at all the souls that are getting saved. No, he said, go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. Now we know, church, that Jesus goes on to emphasize the spiritual component of salvation as well. But notice, from the very beginning, we see part of proclaiming the good news is meeting the physical needs of people, tangibly demonstrating that God actually cares for them. Church, isn't that good to know this morning? God doesn't just care about your eternal destination. He cares about your present circumstance. That's why after helping us properly align our hearts with the character, will, and kingdom of God, Jesus invites us to bring our most basic, boring, commonplace needs to God, to ask him to bring heaven to earth. Matthew 6, 11 says this, Give us this day our daily bread. Church. It does not get more mundane than that. Asking God for daily bread, food for today. But that's precisely the point. See, God cares about even our most mundane physical needs. Indeed, from the very beginning, God created us with 
physical needs. God could have made us self-sufficient, but even in our perfection, we still required certain things for survival. And God was always faithful to provide them, not in part, but in abundance. Knowing our need for food and water, he planted us in a garden with all kinds of fruit to eat, with rivers to drink from. He designed our bodies to require the intake of oxygen, and he optimally constructed the air for that intake. And because our bodies export carbon dioxide when we exhale, he made vegetation to to convert it into breathable oxygen again. He gave us sunlight not only for warmth but also for vitamin D. He designed us as emotional beings to flourish in the context of community and relationship. So we didn't just make Adam, he made Eve. Listen, church, we are dependent creatures in every sense of the word. Not only because we have needs external to ourselves to survive, not only because we have the need of relationships, but also because we wouldn't even exist if something outside of ourselves hadn't made us. And if that something outside of ourselves did not continue to sustain our existence. That's why the Apostle Paul says that quite literally, in him we live and we move and we have our being. Job, likewise, says, in his hand is the life of every living thing and the breath of all mankind. Colossians 1.16 says, for by him all things were created. And then it goes on to say, in him all things hold together. John 1.3, all things were made through him. Without him was not anything made that was made. Hebrews 1.3 says, he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Listen, church, that means that not only would we not be here without God's declaration that there be life, but also if at any point he withdrew his hand, life would be gone in a second. He not only created the universe, he actively sustains the universe. Every single molecule, every single atom, listen, every little piece of you. God is holding it all together. You are completely dependent on him. On the count of three, I want everyone to take a deep breath. You ready? One, two, three. That's God's good gift to you. Man, you are completely dependent on the author of life for every breath you take. We take it for granted, but the fact that you are sitting here right now is God's gift to you. You are alive right now because God has willed it. Your life is precious, so don't take it for granted. If so often we forget just how dependent we are because we have set up this illusion of self-sufficiency. We think we're in control, and this is especially a tendency for us because we live in a very prosperous culture. We have so much that we forget our need for him to provide. But many of the people to whom Jesus was speaking would have been very aware of their need for God to provide. Many of them didn't even know where their next meal was coming from. Many would have been day laborers who went to work in the morning, collected a day's wage at night, enough to secure food for the next day. So if they didn't work that day, whether because of illness or injury or just laziness, it didn't matter, they didn't eat One bad day could mean hunger and deprivation, not only for yourself, but for your family. And then on top of that, as an agrarian society, man, one dry season, one bad crop, one invasion of locusts, and your whole year could be derailed. Indeed, you could spend years in famine. Extreme poverty could come upon you overnight. If you were going to make it, you knew you needed the Lord. 
Indeed, the Israelites knew this from their own history, which is why Jesus uses this language here of daily bread. When the Israelites were wandering through the wilderness after being delivered from Egypt and they began to hunger, God promised them this. He said, I am about to rain bread from heaven for you. And each day, God would send down manna, bread from heaven for them to gather and eat. But he instructed them to gather only enough to eat for that day. Indeed, he told them, if you try to hoard anything, any extra, it will spoil overnight. But there was no need to stockpile because God's mercy was new each morning. God would send down bread every single day, every day for 40 years. Like clockwork, God supplied daily bread for his people. So day by day, the people learned that their God wasn't just great. He was kind. They could trust God to provide. Indeed, Moses said that this was, this was the reason for their time in the wilderness. He said it is to humble you, to let you hunger, that God might feed them with the manna and let them see where their help truly comes from. Which is why Moses' greatest fear for the people was not that they would starve, but it was that when they made it to Canaan, the promised land said to flow with milk and honey when their daily need for God was not as apparent because the fruit of the land was so abundant. His fear was that they would neglect their relationship with the Lord, serve other gods, and practice immorality. Listen to what he says in Deuteronomy 8. He says, Take care, lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his rules and his statutes, which I commanded you today. Lest when you have eaten and you are full and you've built good houses and live in them, when your herds and your flocks multiply, your silver and gold is multiplied, and all that you have is multiplied, be careful that your heart be lifted up and you forget the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Verse 16, who fed you in the wilderness with manna that your fathers did not know, that he might humble you and test you to do you good in the end. Beware, he says, lest you say in your heart, listen, my power, my might, the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. Church, that was a threat for them back then. How much more is that a warning for us today? I mean, if you're alive in the 21st century in the United States of America, you have hit the historical jackpot. Because even the poorest among us are well off compared to most others in the world today and to the vast majority of people throughout human history. And listen, when that's the norm, it's easy to forget just how fragile our existence actually is. We take a lot for granted. We believe we're in control, that we've got it together. That's why the Bible warns us so often about wealth. It's why Jesus warns us that it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter in the kingdom of heaven. It's not because Jesus is anti-money. It's because of this reality. When everything is going well for us, we tend to forget our need for him. That's why the book of Proverbs says this, Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? 
or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. Do you see? He says, I see that there are dangers on both sides. It's dangerous to be rich, just as it's dangerous to be poor. He's like, hey God, please don't ever let me be so poor that I'm tempted to steal, but also don't ever let me be so wealthy that I'm tempted to forget the one from whom my blessings flow. Because when everything is going great, it's so easy to begin to think that we did this instead of recognizing it is only by his grace that I have what I have. The fact that I have food on my table, money in the bank, a roof over my head is not a result of my efforts and my ingenuity. Sure, I might have talents and a good work ethic, but listen, even my ability to work is a gift from God. Often, it is not until something goes wrong that we begin to realize that even with all our strength and skill, we are still finite. We are still limited. We're not nearly as independent as we thought. Just ask someone who was once healthy who now has a terminal illness. Or someone who worked hard their entire life until that debilitating injury. Or someone who never had a financial concern until they lost their job. Studies even show that about 40% of Americans are one missed paycheck away from poverty. See, even when it appears that we have it all together, we're just one moment away from disaster. And that's what Jesus wants us to recognize here. We are finite creatures. We're contingent beings. We might think we're independent, but at every moment, we are fully dependent on another for our existence. So no matter how great you think you are, you still need bread. And you still need God to supply it. And you know what? God loves you enough that he did just that. All you have to do is ask him. And friend, not just bread. Friend, he knows your every need. I don't know what burdens you carried in here this morning, but listen, he does. <laughs> and he says you can cast them all on him because he cares for you. Listen, the one who tends to the sparrow and clothes the fields with lilies is far more concerned for you. <laughs> and if he could make bread rain from heaven, don't you think he can take care of whatever your need is today? Ask him. Ask him. Your God is not a deadbeat dad. He's a good father who provides for his children. Maybe you don't have everything you want, but listen, the fact that you're sitting here right now shows you have everything you need. He gives us our daily bread. But Jesus wants us to also see something deeper here, and it's the second point here. God uses our physical needs to demonstrate our greater spiritual needs. God uses our physical needs to demonstrate our greater or spiritual needs. Again, we're holistic beings. That means our bodies and our souls are deeply connected. As such, our physical needs are a window into our more fundamental spiritual needs. Because I was created in God's image for true flourishing to occur, I not only need my physical needs met, I need a spiritual connection with the one in whose image I was made. See, before the fall, this was easy. All was in perfect harmony, shalom. Not only were our physical needs met in abundance, but we were in perfect relationship with our creator, which means we were also in perfect relationship with one another. Life was good. Though we were fully dependent, we lacked 
for nothing. Do you see then the utter atrocity of what mankind did on that fateful day in Genesis 3? When our ancestors, Adam and Eve, ate from the one tree God told them not to eat from, they sought nourishment from a source other than the ones that God had provided. They rejected the only one who could completely supply their needs. They declared their independence from the only source of life and goodness and blessing in the universe. And how's that going for us? Because if we're dependent even before the fall, how much more are we dependent after the fall? Because the wage of sin is death. And that fatal punishment meant not only that we would die physically, but that we would die spiritually. That's what we deserve. And yet, even here, man, God is faithful in his provision. When Adam and Eve made that choice on our behalf to cut themselves off from the source of life, God God could have completely given them what they desired and killed them on the spot. And yet, in his mercy, he did not execute his judgment fully at that time. Instead, he deferred that judgment to the shoulders of his son who would ultimately bear the weight of our sin. And he allowed mankind to continue in existence even though we deserved to die. That would be mercy enough. But as Jesus himself pointed out earlier in the sermon, in Matthew 5.45, he says, God even makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. Do you see what he's saying here? He's saying, despite our sin, God continues to provide for us. And more than that, he even allows us to experience joy and delight in life and in his creation. I mean, sunsets and sweet tea and children's laughter and music and poetry and friendship. Friends, these are God's common graces to us. All from his hand of provision. Listen, you don't deserve any of this. You don't even deserve to be here. Anything good you have in your life is God's kindness to you. You don't deserve it. Sickness, disease, despair, sorrow, suffering, that should be your norm. Even if you get to go on living. Listen, you shouldn't marvel when something bad happens. You should marvel when anything good happens. Because we don't deserve anything good. Again, on the count of three, everybody take a deep breath. Ready? One, two, three. That's God's gift to you. You don't deserve it. The wage of sin is death, but he has kindly met your physical needs to bring you to this moment where you could see your greater spiritual need. In fact, when God sent manna from heaven to the Israelites, yes, it was because he cared about their physical needs and made provision for their survival in the wilderness. But listen to what Moses says was the main reason for the manna in Deuteronomy 8. He says, and you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. Listen, he humbled you. He let you hunger. He fed 
fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know. Why? That he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. In other words, the point of God giving them daily bread was not so that they could see their need for food. It was so they could see their need for him. That it was not by their might or by their power that they were being delivered. It was by the word of God. And this word not only secured their physical salvation, it also secured the spiritual salvation because through them, God would send the Messiah to deliver not just Israel, but people from every nation. Listen, if they had died in the desert, they would not have been the only ones to perish that day. We would all have died that day because without Israel, there would be no Messiah. And if there's no Messiah, there's no salvation. Oh, but thanks be to God, he takes care of his people. He did it for them so he could do it for you. Friend, just look at God's hand of provision in your life. He's given you food. He's given you drink. He's given you sleep. He's given you shelter. He's given you friends. He's given you family. The Lord has been kind to you. But the point of all those things was not for you to sit there and just feel good about how fortunate you are. No, it was so that you could recognize how deeply and desperately you need a relationship with him. Because more than meeting your physical needs, he also made provision for your spiritual need. Because like the Israelites, Jesus also hungered in the wilderness when he was tempted by the devil. And Satan, man, he pulled the same move on him that he used on Adam and Eve in the beginning. Taunting Jesus to seek nourishment from something other than God. Telling him to use his divine powers to turn stones into bread. But Jesus responds with the words that Moses uttered to the Israelites in the desert. He said, man. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And with these words, Jesus did what Adam failed to do. He put his trust in God to meet his physical needs. And because he did, Jesus is now able to meet your spiritual need. Because he fully obeyed God. He was able to bear the wrath reserved for us. When Jesus died on the cross, he took not only the punishment we deserve, the Bible says that he reconciled us to God. He restored the spiritual connection, the relationship with God that we had lost. That's why Jesus said more than physical bread, we need spiritual bread. After Jesus fed the 5,000, everyone marveled at how he had multiplied the bread so much that there were just baskets and baskets and baskets of leftovers. Yes, they thought, free groceries for life. They start stalking Jesus. They're like, hey, Lord, remember that time you did that crazy trick with that kid's lunch? Man, that was nuts. Man, can you do that again? Like for infinity, right? And Jesus is like, yeah, guys, chill out. Like that's not the reason I came. And they're like, but our man Moses, man, he gave us bread in the wilderness. And Jesus says, hey, I've got something better than that bread. I have bread that never perishes. I have bread that leads to eternal life. And they're like, yes, please, thinking he's about to give them some super-powered baked goods for life. And then Jesus drops this bomb on them. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Do you know what Jesus is saying here? He's saying your physical need is great, but your spiritual need is greater. And if it's true that in and of yourself you can't even meet your own physical need, how much less can you who are fallen meet your spiritual need? You can't. You need a savior. 
And thanks be to God, the very one who put food in your stomach, water on your lips, sunshine on your face, rest in the night, has also secured salvation for your weary soul. Don't you want that? Listen, if you're hungry and thirsty for that, friend, I've got good news. Because I don't care how jacked up your life is. I don't care what you've tried to stuff down deep inside of you to give you some peace, some happiness. Listen, I don't care how far you've fallen. He will not withhold his blessing from you. If today you see your need for him, his promise is sure. You will be satisfied. Friend, the one who sent manna from heaven himself came down from heaven to bring heaven to you. He can meet your need. He can rescue you if you will ask him. So will you ask him? But finally, notice one more thing in this verse. It doesn't say give me my daily bread. It says give us our daily bread. Once again, we see this communal essence of our relationship with God. It was never meant to be me and Jesus. It was meant to be we and Jesus. We're in this together. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 12, 26, if one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. In other words, in Christ, my brother or my sister's need now becomes my own. Why? Because we're family. Therefore, I earnestly pray for their need because their need isn't just their need, it's our need. That's why we see this final truth in this prayer today. Our heart, a heart aligned with God, shares his heart for the needs of others. A heart aligned with God shares his heart for the needs of others. See, as we grow in our love for God, that inevitably leads us growing in our love for one another. Indeed, to our loving each other even as we love ourselves, which means just as I naturally seek to deal with my own needs as they arise, I'm now looking toward the needs of those God has placed around me, especially within my church family. As Paul tells us in Ephesians or Galatians 6, so then as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone and especially to those who are of the household of faith. So I have a heart for those around me. I rejoice with them. I weep with them. I pray for for them. But it goes even beyond this because as I seek God on others' behalf, He just might show me how I can meet their need. That just as He provided for me, so too might I be the means He uses to minister to someone else. There was a powerful but devastating photo taken in the early 1990s in the Sudan by a photojournalist named Kevin Carter. Sudan was experiencing widespread famine and civil war at the time. Carter was invited in to document the horror of what was going on there. And while he was there, he took all kinds of pictures of refugees, displaced people trying to make it to a safe place where they could get food and clothing. And one picture that he took was particularly impactful, showing the dire nature of life in the Sudan. In a single child, clearly starving, collapsed in fatigue, about to die with notice, a vulture looming in the background, seemingly ready to pounce. This image was published with a news story in the New York Times, and it brought home to readers the severity of the situation in Sudan and even inspired many to contribute toward hunger relief in the region. So powerful was this image that Carter would go on to win the Pulitzer Prize for his work. 
But upon its publication, the photo also brought tremendous controversy. Readers began to flood the New York Times with letters expressing concern for this child. And the response of the paper at that time was that nothing else was known about the child's condition or if the child had even survived. Time magazine, where the photo was also published, likewise put out a statement saying Carter is not sure what happened to the little girl who was moving toward the nearby relief center when he saw her, but he is hopeful that she received food and treatment. Which naturally led to a bigger question. What do you mean you're hopeful? Do you not know? How could you take a picture like that with a child seemingly on the verge of death and not do something to help? As one writer for another paper at the time put it, to many who see the picture, there's only one way to respond to such a tragedy. Go pick up the girl. Make sure she's safe. Make sure she's fed. Otherwise, this person said, the man adjusting his lens to take just the right frame of her suffering might just as well be a predator, another vulture on the scene. Carter himself seemed to wrestle with this in hindsight. Struggling to cope with this experience along with the other traumatic scenes he'd witnessed during his career, just months after receiving the Pulitzer Prize, Carter would end his own life. Now, you know, it's easy for us to look at a situation like this in judgment, reprimanding someone for failing to act, thinking that we would somehow have done something different. But friends, listen, (laughs) we do this every day. Maybe not on that level. Maybe not with the whole world watching, but there are people in need us, a need around us every day that we don't even notice, or worse, we blatantly ignore. As one song puts it, the least of these look like criminals to me, so I leave Christ on the street. Maybe it's not even necessarily with malice in our heart. It's just because we're so wrapped up in our own world, so concerned with our own needs But what if you're the means God wants to use to provide someone else with their daily bread? 1 John 3.17 says this, If anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? What is John wanting us to see? He's wanting us to see that connection between the spiritual and the physical, the heavenly and the earthly. That's why 1 John 4.20 says, He who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. Because if I truly love God, if his name is hallowed in my life, if his kingdom has come in my life, if his will is being done in my life, the evidence of that is not simply in my emotions. No, it is seen in my actions. I will love Love my neighbor. I will concern myself with his needs. Indeed, James says if we have no concern for our brother, we lack genuine faith. Why? Because genuine faith isn't about good vibes. It's seen in good works. The truly spiritual are concerned for the physical. 
That's why throughout history, when Christians have been most faithfully focused on King Jesus, it has been marked by a deep concern for neighbors. Indeed, from the very beginning, Christian movements have been at the forefront of things like health care. Most famously during the Black Plague, when everyone else was running away from sickness, Christians were the ones tending to the sick because they did not fear death because they knew where their help came from and they knew where they were going. Likewise, throughout history, Christians have been at the forefront of orphan care, refugee ministry, poverty and disaster relief, the abolition movement, the civil rights movement, the protection of vulnerable populations such as the preborn, the elderly, those with special needs. And listen, none of this was seen as adding to the gospel of the kingdom. It certainly wasn't viewed as a distraction to the gospel of the kingdom. No, it was because of the gospel of the kingdom that Christians were doing these things. Because they believe that every person is created in the image of God and that every person is a potential brother or sister in Christ, someone for whom Jesus died. They wanted every person to experience his love by tending to their physical needs. But more importantly, they wanted all people to experience his love by showing them their spiritual need and pointing them to the only one who could meet it. That's why they were willing to go to great lengths, make great sacrifices, including to their own physical needs, to get the gospel to where it had not yet been. Because there is only one name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. That name is Jesus. And this is why, church, this is why we proclaim the good news of Jesus, meeting both physical and spiritual needs. And in so doing, we give a foretaste of heaven on earth. That day when the King of Kings returns to make all things right, when there will be no more need, no more tears, no more pain, no more sorrow, no more sickness, no more death, because there will be no more sin. This is why we go We long to see the kingdom come. We long to see his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And though we know it will not fully come until the day Christ returns and fully restores shalom on the earth, until that day, we herald the kingdom, trusting him to meet our needs that we might meet the needs of others, giving glimpses of the glory to come, even in the midst of this present darkness, fixing our eyes on Jesus. Jesus, not because our head is lost in the clouds, but because he left the glory of heaven and came to earth to restore that which was broken, to redeem us body and soul, to meet our needs physically and spiritually, to establish a new heaven and a new earth, world without end. This is our hope. (laughs) This is our mission. Oh, church, May we be so heavenly minded that we are of true earthly good. Will you pray with me? Thank you for listening to this podcast. For more information about our church, visit welfordchurch.org. Blessings.